Welcome to the Veterans for Peace Radio Hour and Podcast on Radio Free Nashville 107.1 and 103.7 and streaming live at RadioFreeNashville.org. Why would the U.S., knowing that its own assessment is that it would create a civil war in Ukraine, why did they go forward with this? Why did they do it? And the only answer you can can conclude with is they wanted a civil war in Ukraine. They wanted a civil war in Ukraine because it creates a pretext for the U.S. moving Ukraine into NATO. That was Brian Becker, peace activist, podcaster, and national coordinator of the Answer Coalition. And we'll hear more from Brian. But first, my name is Jim Wolgamuth, and I'm here with fellow Vietnam veteran Harvey Bennett. Veterans for Peace is an international organization of military veterans and allies whose collective efforts are to build a culture of peace, humanity, equality, and justice. Just go to veteransforpeace.org. The radio show is on stations across the country. Thanks to the Pacific Radio Network. We're also on SoundCloud, Spotify, and your phone. Just search veteransforpeace.org. The Veterans for Peace Radio Hour and Podcast and Radio Free Nashville are supported in part by the Green Party of Tennessee. Go to greenpartyoftennessee.org. Now on to our interview with Brian Becker. You are the national coordinator of the Answer Coalition. You are the founder and founder of and central organizer for Party for Socialism, Socialism and Liberation. <laughs> what else do you want people to know about you? I know you've been you're a writer, you're an activist. I'm the host of a I'm the host of a podcast. It's it's a podcast and a video called The Socialist Program. And that comes out three times a week. Harvey and I just were treated to your interview with Abby Martin on Empire Files. And we don't want to repeat that, uh, but maybe build on that because, and, and if anybody hasn't seen it, if anybody hasn't seen it, all you have to do is go to YouTube, go to Empire Files and uh, Brian Becker, and it'll come straight up. And it was um incredibly informative and had a had uh you'll get a better understanding of what's going on between russia ukraine nato and the u.s by just listening to that because there's a lot of fog of media out there right now um and so brian uh as we as we're trying to deal with that fog of fog of media you is there anything that you'd like to like to start off with and then we well, can ask some questions. Yeah, sure. I could I could start. I think the the Russian military invasion of Ukraine uh, will be remembered as a, a turning point in contemporary politics. This is not um, a, just a conjunctural moment. We've entered a new political period. This is, in fact, what multipolarity looks like. There's been a lot of talk in the left in the anti-war movement that when the US became a unipolar power following the dissolution of the Soviet Union in 1991, that led to the US endlessly invading, occupying and sanctioning other countries, all of which is true. Uh, we can look at all of the last 30 years, the two, two invasions of Iraq, even the invasion of Somalia, which people might not remember in 1992, done to uh, under the pretext of helping to stop a famine, which I don't know why you have to have Marines landing on the beach to stop a famine. But that happened in 1992. The U.S. went to war against Yugoslavia in 1995. And then NATO bombed the hell out of Yugoslavia, dropped 78,000 bombs and missiles in 1999. Then the U.S. invaded Afghanistan 
in October 2001, and then in March 2003, the invasion of Iraq, and then the bombing of Libya in 2011, and the destruction of the Libyan government, you know, on and on and on. So you could see unipolar power is very dangerous because of the hubris and arrogance of American policymakers when they think nobody can challenge us, nobody can stop us, we can do whatever we want. All of these former all of these countries that are independent of imperialism are now like, like low-hanging fruit that can be demolished. That's bad. But what we're seeing with Russia's invasion of Ukraine is the beginning of multipolarity, meaning another center of power, where the Russians are big enough to say to the United States, look, we're not going to let Ukraine be incorporated into NATO. We're not going to allow Ukraine to become the staging ground so that you, America, and NATO can put uh, missiles, advanced missiles, including missiles who have nuclear missiles that have a flight time of six or seven minutes to their target in Russia in the area that was, I mean, Ukraine was the biggest, second biggest republic of the Soviet Union, Russia's historic ally. We're not going to let you use that territory to existentially threaten us in a way that we will never be safe. But Russia had the capacity when negotiations failed to move in militarily. So now we have multipolarity, right? Not just American power. There's a now we have Russian power. But where does this lead us? Does it I mean if for all of us for veterans for peace and whether you're a military veteran or just a veteran meaning you've been a longtime peace activist you know, you we we need a vision for peace that not only identifies the the problem posed by the government that speaks in our name, the United States government and NATO, the military alliance that leads, but we need a to project a vision of what international relations look like so that we don't end up back in World War One or back in World War Two. And I believe we've entered in this new era of multipolarity caused by US-NATO recklessness and the exercise of unipolar power, you know, putting Russia in a corner and threatening Russia. Now we're in a situation where we don't know where it ends. Now 70% of the population in America says, yeah, let's have a no-fly zone against Russia because they're, they're hearing that in the media. I mean, do the American people know that a no-fly zone in Ukraine means that when Russian planes come in, America's uh, anti-aircraft or other missiles are gonna shoot down Russian planes. I mean, Russia has 5,000 nuclear weapons. The US has about the same. I mean, then we are in, we're in a, a, a war between the two biggest nuclear powers. We're close to the edge. And here you have Americans saying, yeah, we should have a no-fly zone. How did they learn that? I mean, Americans couldn't even put Ukraine on a map. They certainly don't know where Kiev is. They don't know what countries are in or not in NATO. But suddenly they've been told, yeah, let's have a no-fly zone because the politicians are telling the American people, Russia's big, bad, ugly. America's just helping defend Ukrainian freedom, decontextualizing what this conflict is all about, and then saying, let's ramp it up. You know, isn't that the way the politicians always talk? Like, let's show how big and bad and tough we are by ramping it up. Well, now we're ramping it up towards global war. I mean, that's where we are right now. Do, do you think Putin has changed along the way? Because he was talking about no expansion of NATO. Just keep, he, he just wanted to keep Russia secure. But 
in that speech during the week of the invasion and recently, now he's talking about Ukraine has always been Russia. Did he change along the way or was it just our media that was giving us the wrong idea? Yeah, no, I think it's a really, really important point because it's important to get into Putin's head. Like what's going on here? What is he thinking? What are his calculations? What, what does he really want? And then what's his historic or political justification to invade another country, which is obviously a violation of the UN charter, right? We all know that. So, and he knows that, and he knows that Russia is gonna be heavily sanctioned and, and made into a pariah state. So what's he thinking? And those speeches that he made on February 22nd, 20, February 21st, our time, February 22nd, Russian time, and then the, the day of the invasion, and then he made another speech in, in the last day or so, or I, you know, last week. <laughs> you know, it, it's a window into his thinking. So your question is, has he changed? I mean, Putin was very cautious over all these years in the face of the American-led uh, coup d'etat in 2014 in Kiev in the capital of Ukraine that took Ukraine out of its neutral status, a balance between East and West, and made Ukraine a, a de facto member, a virtual member of NATO, even if it's not a formal member. That changed the balance of forces. And, and even then, you know, Putin didn't like immediately recognize those two independent people's republics in the East, the Russian part of Ukraine. He didn't recognize them. He didn't say, yeah, we're going to recognize you. He did annex Crimea after the referendum in June 2014. But Crimea is not only a Russian place, it's always been part of Russia. It was Nikita Khrushchev in 1954 who transferred Crimea to from Russia to Ukraine. But that didn't matter that much because they were the same country. It would be like <laughs> taking part of Pennsylvania and giving it to New Jersey. <laughs> so even then, yeah, he said Crimea isn't going to go into Ukraine because that's where the Russia's biggest naval base is, mm -hmm. the Black Sea naval base. So, okay, so he did that, but he didn't, he didn't invade and he didn't recognize the People's Republics and they didn't move Russian troops into, into Eastern Ukraine or any part of Ukraine. So what changed? What really changed? Those speeches say, indicate that Putin says, look, Putin, uh, Ukraine is in a way a kind of a fake country that Vladimir Lenin and the Bolsheviks created Ukraine in the Treaty of 1922 after the Russian Revolution consolidated its victories and the communists were in charge of different republics of the former Russian Empire, including a Ukrainian Republic, the Russian Republic, etc. So in 1922, the Bolsheviks under Lenin's leadership signed a treaty that forms the Soviet Union, and that's ratified in the Constitution of 1924, the Soviet Constitution. And that, that treaty says there's going to be a union of republics, a union of socialist republics. So Russia's one republic, it's the biggest one, but it's just one. There's also Ukraine, there's also Belarus. These are other non-Russian peoples who are gonna be have equality within the new union. And also Lenin's thesis on the national question, as it was called, is that if any of the republics decide that they're fed up with working with Russia, they can secede from the union. So he said, look, you have the right to divorce. It's like having a marriage where both sides have the right to get out of the marriage. 
but it's a marriage between republics instead of couples. And so Lenin said, this is the principle. That's what, that's what Putin attacked in his speech. He said, one, Ukraine really shouldn't have been its own republic, that, that Lenin created it. And two, they shouldn't have had the right to secede. And the reason the Soviet Union dissolved is because of Lenin. Now, it's really turning history upside down because the person who dissolved the Soviet Union was not Lenin, obviously. It wasn't Stalin, it wasn't Khrushchev, it wasn't Brezhnev, it was Boris Yeltsin. And Boris Yeltsin did it while they were overthrowing the Soviet Union. He dissolved the Soviet Union. He signed in a decree in December, 1916. And he said, we're gonna go on the capitalist road and Russia will be an independent Republic. Ukraine can be an independent Republic. <clears throat> it, was, it was Yeltsin who did it, not Lenin. But the reason I'm raising this in, in response to your question is that it's, it's a window into Putin's thinking. Who is he appealing to when he says, look, uh, Ukraine really shouldn't be a country after all anyway. He's appealing to right-wing Russian nationalists who have the idea that the Russian empire was a good thing, not a bad thing, and that they're patriots, they're nationalists, and he can win over that part of the population. But there's a second part of his speech. He said, you know, Ukraine actually, in a way, gave up even the semblance of sovereignty with the 2014 coup, because at that point, it became a puppet government of Western countries, mainly the United States and NATO. And those countries mean to use Ukraine as a perennial threat to our security. That's where Hitler invaded Russia and the Soviet Union in 1941. That's where the Germans invaded through in, uh, in 1914. That's where Napoleon invaded Russia way back when. Like, we're not going to let, and this is Putin's thinking, he said, we're not going to let you take our former territories, Russian territories that are now called Ukraine, and turn them into a staging ground for NATO countries to put advanced nuclear missiles right on our border. So that was very ominous. And that showed that Putin had gone through a shift in his thinking. Instead of upholding the Minsk Accords, let's have peace in the East, he was like, he really came to the conclusion, war is inevitable. The question is, do we wait until Ukraine is incorporated into NATO, and then we're in a much weaker position where NATO puts all of these advanced missiles on our border that we can't defend against, or do we, on the contrary, strike first, take over Ukraine, and create a buffer? And obviously, Lenin came to the, I mean, I'm sorry, Putin came to the conclusion that war is coming. He even criticized Stalin for having signed the non-aggression pact with Hitler in 1939, because he said that appeased the aggressor when we should have actually just prepared 100% for war with the aggressor. I never did get the sense that the U.S. ever seriously considered any of the points that Putin presented, many of which to me seemed uh, to make a lot of sense. Uh, you know, reestablishing the uh, Intermediate Nuclear Force Treaty, you know, these uh, unacceptable uh, missile batteries very close to the border. Do you think that there was ever any serious effort on the part of the U.S. to engage in diplomacy? Or in my darkest moments, I think Blinken is getting exactly what he wanted. Harvey, you, I think, have raised like such an important point. And I'm um, 
I don't know the answer uh, fully, but I'm going to I'm going to give you my best guess. My best guess, the thing that I believe is true, even though we don't have enough information to fully prove it, is I believe when Putin said we are serious, these are red lines, you have to give us a security guarantee. NATO can't can't use Ukraine as a staging ground for offensive weapons against us after you cancel the <coughs> INF treaty, where these prohibited banned missiles, they uh, they reach their targets in five minutes. You know, we're, we can't let you use Ukraine to put those kind of missiles that are, we can't even defend against because they, they hit their targets too quickly and their nuclear missiles will always be a, like a, a subject nation to you. We'll al always be on our knees. Like that was a legitimate security concern. And he also amassed all these troops, 150,000 troops, sort of right. making the point, like, if you don't say yes, I can do this too. I can invade. So like, why not say yes? Why not say yes? That's the question. And, yeah. and instead of no. And so I think Blinken, Kurt Campbell, Victoria Nuland, Jake Sullivan, the whole crew that carried out the Maidan coup in 2014 were very happy with the situation they created. They're crying crocodile tears about Ukrainians right now. They didn't give a damn. They see these people as pawns. Yeah. And what they were doing is putting a situation, a, a, a scenario together. And we know now from the Washington Post, by the way, a story that came out yesterday with classified documents that while Putin was demanding this security guarantee, they were actually sending in a billion or billions of dollars of new advanced weapons into Ukraine in December. Mm -hmm. In December, when Russia had already amassed these troops. So why would they do that? Now, of course, they'll say, well, we thought an invasion was coming. But I think it's because they assumed that taking such a hyper aggressive posture would would force Putin to come into the eastern parts of Ukraine. This is my theory. Again, I can't prove it to come into the eastern part of Ukraine say, look, there's an abused Russian minority that's being shelled. We're going to defend them and we're putting our foot down. And then the US would say, see, Russia is an aggressor. It could impose vast new sanctions on Russia for having invaded Eastern Ukraine. But then the US would have the rest of Ukraine and immediately incorporate it into NATO on the pretext that it was necessary for the self-defense of the rest of the country. And then the same scenario would play out where they would place all of these advanced missiles on Russia's border and now they'd have a pretext. Mm -hmm. And so what Putin decided is like, the war is coming, we know it's coming, and we're gonna not wait and, and wait till it's too late. We're gonna take the offensive first step. But what they did, what Russia did, which I think the Americans didn't expect, was they're not just trying to take the Eastern part of Ukraine. They're trying to take all of Ukraine. If you look at the military scenario, they're coming from the North and the East, but most importantly, they're coming from the south in the east, and they're building that land corridor on the southern part of Ukraine from Crimea all the way to the western border with Poland. That's their goal. And they're going to create these cauldrons or kettles surround Ukrainian military and then give them like surrender or die kind of ultimatums. And then the U.S. won't be able to take any part of Ukraine and use it as a staging ground for NATO because Russia would have moved Ukraine into a Russian sphere of influence. So once the war was 
once once Putin made the declaration that the war it, or his thinking war is coming, we have to act first while we're while the enemy's weaker instead of us being weaker. And then he comes up with these historical rationales for why Ukraine is a fake country, meaning why it should actually be under the complete domination of Russia because he doesn't want the eastern part of Ukraine. He wants to make sure no part of Ukraine enters NATO. That's my theory. Mm -hmm. That clarifies a lot for me because I was thinking, okay, if Putin invades, he's just going to take those two, those two areas, provinces, whatever you call it, uh, to the east and let it go because that's where you've got a Russian, um, a, a Russian populace. But your thought as far as, okay, that's what the United States predicted. He'll go there. Then they have all the impetus to have, have Ukraine join NATO. And again, I don't really know because we're, you know, we're not a fly on the wall inside of Putin's deliberations. We do know that this Washington Post story, when I saw that, especially that the U.S. was, you know, having huge amounts of weapons, more weapons flow in in December and January and early February. At the very moment when it was clear that Russia might go to war, then I was thinking like, the other alternative would have been to say to Russia, okay, we do want to meet with you and your, your security concerns are legit and let's come to an, an arrangement and you know, Ukraine will be neutral. Like what's wrong with neutrality? I mean, mm -hmm. Finland was neutral all these years. Mm -hmm. Switzerland was neutral. Austria was neutral after World War II. Like why is it like a violation of Ukrainian self-determination to say you can't be part of a, you can't be the, the, the tip of the spear of a US-led military alliance targeting Russia. But they didn't say that. They went in the opposite direction, which means, and you think about who the cast of characters is. It's, it's Campbell, Kurt Campbell, Jake Sullivan, Victoria Newland, Anthony Blinken. These were the Clintonite hardliners. These were the people who, you know, the Clintons were the, team that that bombed the hell out of Yugoslavia, destroyed Yugoslavia in 1999. They're they're the real hawks. And not that I mean, all of the American political establishment is hawks. You see, Zelensky was on a phone call with 280 members of Congress. And I mean, how do you leave the front lines to be able to talk to Marco Rubio and <laughs> let him do things so he can tweet about it? Yeah. I mean, really incredible. But I mean, America is an imperial country. The establishment, it's not just like the Democrats or the Republicans, it's all of them. I mean, mm -hmm. the entire edifice of American politics is based on militarism and imperial thinking and hubris and arrogance. And I mean, the fact that these opera singers, you, you see this, the opera singers are being fired and operas and orchestras are removing Russian because the people they say to people, you must repudiate your government right now. Yeah. Or you're going to be fired. So all these stars, cultural figures are being dismissed because they're Russian and they're not repudiating their government. Now, I don't remember one orchestra telling one American during the U.S. invasion of Iraq, which is not on America's border, didn't wasn't having big heavy weapons placed that threaten America like we. The U.S. invaded there. Hundreds of thousands of Iraqis died. No American was, you know, punished for being an American at a time when their government in, took this action. I mean, it, this is where we are in the country right now. It's, it's like so gross. And even I have to say, it's not just the bourgeois 
political right-wing forces, you go out and speak to family members or your coworkers or your neighbors. I'm talking to my daughter who's 21 and her friends are all, you know, they've been in like all these protests for the last two years against police violence, against, you know, in support of Palestine, all kinds of things. They're like 100% now against Russia, meaning it's not just being against Russia, okay, but it's also really being with NATO. Mm -hmm. Really mean NATO are the good guys. The American government is the good guys. They're defending Ukraine and the Russians are the bad guys. That's where we are. This is, this is the kind of political climate that we have to work in at the moment. I want to draw people's attention to a document that was released by WikiLeaks in 2008 uh, after the Bucharest summit of NATO, where the United States said uh, they were going to incorporate Ukraine, which was the second biggest republic in the Soviet Union, and Georgia, the two Western republics of the Soviet Union and Russia's biggest allies, they were going to incorporate them into NATO. And at that time, Putin said, no, you'll never do that. WikiLeaks has released a document from, I think it's Robert Gates, who was then Secretary of Defense. He predicted that if the US went forward with incorporating Ukraine into NATO, it would lead to a civil war in Ukraine. Now, that's important because the US is, uh, why would the US, knowing that its own assessment is that it would create a civil war in Ukraine, why did they go forward with this? Why did they do it? And the only answer you can, can conclude with is they wanted a civil war in Ukraine. They wanted a civil war in Ukraine because it creates a pretext for the US moving Ukraine into NATO. And so uh, don't believe and don't think about, don't be moved by the crocodile tears and the propaganda of the US policymakers. They did this. They deliberately created this crisis. They cynically used Ukrainians as pawns. When Russia finally did move in, they cynically now pretend that they're horrified and mortified when they knew since 2008 that if they continued to pursue this, pol this policy, it would lead to war in Ukraine. And they did it anyway. They did so it we anyway. have to like really focus on the facts. You're listening to Brian Becker on the Veterans for Peace Radio Hour. I wanted to get your thoughts. The peace movement, you can't just have a peace rally to support Ukraine if you don't condemn NATO uh, and the US. And then again, well, we can't have a peace rally if we don't condemn Putin. And, you know, there's so many of these little arguments going on when it ought to be a peace rally. It ought to be, uh, let's go to negotiating table, something. But we've got these factions now arguing against each other, and it's going to end up with no impact at all. Right. That's right. I mean... And look, if Americans go out and protest against Putin, I mean, Putin doesn't care about that. I mean, he's at war with the United States, basically. The fact that Americans are unhappy with him doesn't, it's not going to influence his thinking. The, the place where we could have an impact is on the government that speaks in our name. Mm -hmm. and, I mean, we're here. We're not in Moscow. I mean, we're here. So if we can't explain to the American people how the U.S. actually deliberately created this crisis and how the U.S. is responsible for it and how the U.S. is actually happy about it 
and that it ignored Russia's legitimate security guarantees. If we can't educate Americans about that, then the plea for peace is somewhat meaningless because we can only influence things in this country. And we can't influence things in this country if people are completely hoodwinked by the propaganda of the mass media, which functions as an echo chamber for the war makers and the military industrial complex. So this is our challenge. I don't think it's gonna be easy right now. I don't think like what you're experiencing in, in Nashville is happening everywhere. I was at a meet, I'm, I'm in Western New York right now. I live in Washington, but I live, I'm in Western New York meeting with peace activists and anti-war people. And I, we were in a meeting last night and the people who we met together were kind of thinking the way I'm thinking or the way the three of us are thinking, you know, a more sophisticated understanding of NATO's role, but they're experiencing the same problem. How do you go out and they don't wanna to go to the anti-war protests that are mainly against Putin, because what's the point? That sounds like you're tar just part of the American chorus. How does that educate anybody? Mm -hmm. You have to find a way to expose NATO, but it's very hard under, under the circumstances because the way the Russians conducted the military operation actually makes NATO's argument that it should have incorporated Ukraine earlier seem to have validity, mm -hmm. right? This is the contradiction. By forcing Russia to take an action, a military action in Ukraine, it provides validity to the argument that Ukraine should have been in NATO. And, and that's the problem. I mean, this, from my point of view, Putin's mistake, and I, I don't, you know, I'm an American, so I'm, I'm not him, I'm not Russia, I'm not under the gun of NATO. But if you think about what the way the Russians carried out the invasion, they denied that it was going to happen. They said even the Russian, the foreign, the woman who's the uh, Russian foreign ministry spokeswoman made jokes about it. She said when the Western media and the Western gov U.S. government was saying an invasion is coming, she laughed and said, oh, please tell me when we're going to invade Ukraine so I can reschedule my vacation plans. And so she had this kind of chuckling thing. And then after denying it, denying it, denying it, they suddenly invade. Like that's, that means all of the arguments were taken away from the anti-NATO people. So in Germany and France, where the people were saying, look, Russia has legitimate security concerns. And even the German government, Olaf Scholz, was meeting frantically with Putin to try to make a deal. And so was Macron, the leader of France. Now they're all behind America. They're all behind NATO. So Putin's tactics here... Uh, have united all of the imperialist entities rather than driving a wedge between them. And it makes it even harder for the left to win the argument. Like if mm -hmm. we were making the argument two weeks ago, we could say, look, Germany doesn't want this. German public opinion is absolutely in support of an agreement with Russia. And they were. They don't want to give up Nord Stream 2. They don't want to pay higher gas prices. Germany is a skeptic of NATO. But now Germany's not a skeptic of NATO. Finland is not a skeptic of NATO. None of them are. So I feel that Putin, by you know, demonstrating, Putin defied some a principle of Soviet foreign policy, which was don't ever let the imperialists unite against us. Mm -hmm. By this tactic, he's actually united the whole world 
of the imperialist world. He didn't unite China, China, Cuba, Vietnam, Venezuela, Iran, North Korea. The 35 countries that abstained at the UN in the General Assembly and, and five more voted no. India, Pakistan, they're, they're, not, they're not completely going down the imperialist camp road. But within the West, he's united the West against Russia. And that makes it harder for us. That's not his main concern is what's happening to us. But, you know, for us, we have to factor it into our tactics. But all I see is that the administration might get the message that the people, like you said before, that the people actually want a no-fly zone, which then leads us down a path to a bigger, uh, a bigger confrontation, maybe a nuclear confrontation. Any thoughts? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I was at a demonstration uh, in Washington last week and all these Ukrainians were coming. What are their demands? Their, their peace, their, they had no war signs. And then they said, NATO, you be our air force. We'll take care of things on the ground. And their flags and banners were from the Azov Brigade. Now the mm -hmm. Azov, they weren't the dominant banners, but they were very present and they were very acceptable to those people demonstrating. Azov Brigade are Nazis, uh, they're fascists, and they are, have been incorporated into the National Guard in Ukraine. They're very active in the Eastern part of the country, carrying out all these attacks against Russians. By the way, the Ukrainian negotiator, I just learned this this morning, the, the Ukrainian negotiator with Russia in the last couple of weeks, who was really advocating for a deal with Russia, he was assassinated either yesterday or the day before. He was assassinated at home. And this is the this is how the right wing in Ukraine is enforcing politics. Like anybody who is for peace is a traitor. Anybody who wants to make a deal with Russia is a traitor. These are hardcore Nazis. And you know, if you have a peace demonstration where the main slogans are no war, one, two, NATO be our air force, and three, we have flags from the Azov Brigade, the Azov Battalion. The left should not join those demonstrations. The left can't merge in and say, oh, we're gonna come in with anti-NATO signs. First of all, if you come into them, you're gonna have just fist fights. Mm -hmm. These people are really right wing. Uh, Harvey found a clip from Lawrence Wilkerson in which he talks about the Biden administration and get your perspective on what Lawrence Wilkerson is saying. Totally devoid of diplomatic skill. And we have no imagination at all. And with imagination goes something called empathy. That is to say, the ability to put yourself in the other fellow's shoes or the other woman's shoes and see it the way they see it. We can't do that. Blinken and Solomon are such amateurs against someone like Sergei Lavrov, the Soviet foreign minister, or the Russian foreign minister, who is one of the best diplomats I've ever met. Maybe equaled only in, on the global stage right now by Wang Yi, the counselor for a foreign minister for Xi Jinping in China. So we're up against some pretty formidable foes, and we're playing amateurs. We're playing amateurs. They need to start thinking, and they are, thank God. I hope I've been debriefed carefully yesterday about what they can concede under the table if they need to. The best diplomacy is conducted under the table, not in the clique lights. And what they concede is exactly what has got 
Putin's military leaders so concerned, so fearful, and that is ballistic missile defense launchers, which can double as Tomahawk missile with nuclear warhead launchers and other things like that, that they fear, they see them creeping into places like Poland, maybe into the Baltics, and they fear they're gonna get even closer and reduce their warning time and reduce such things as their ability to respond to an attack. And people say, I've had these debates ongoing for the past six months. Well, why are they fearful of NATO attacking them? Come on, put yourself in their shoes. Wait until you see a Chinese battle fleet steaming in the Gulf of Mexico, 12 miles and one inch off Corpus Christi, Texas. Wait until you see that. It is China's every right under international law to do that. They could do that 24 seven, all year long. What do you think Washington would say about that? Well, reverse the situation and put yourself in Putin's shoes. We are the most arrogant empire, I think, that's been around for at least a couple hundred years. And that includes the British, so that's arrogant. How do you assess this group? I got, I got John Kennedy and Bobby Kennedy looking over my shoulder right here. And, you know, um, I don't see any of that talent right now. Well, I look at it a little bit differently. Um, I hear Lawrence, what he's saying, and I, I, don't, I don't think he's wrong that they might be, as individuals, amateurish. And compared to Lavrov or the Chinese foreign ministry, I mean, they're, they're minor figures as individuals compared to these people who are you know, really giants of, of, with diplomatic skills. But there's, there's something I think that Lawrence is, he's kind of addressing it, but not addressing it. If it was amateurism, it could still have ended up differently. I think the US deliberately, deliberately pushed this all the way to the very edge, knowing that either Russia would capitulate, in which case it would be humbled and look weak in the face of American pressure, or that Russia would invade and take the eastern part of Ukraine and thus provide a pretext for America to integrate the rest of Ukraine into, uh, into NATO, and then place those advanced weapons that Lawrence was talking about right there. Mm -hmm. So I don't think the problem was their amateurism, which doesn't mean that they're not amateurs. I think the problem is what the real objective of the US operation was. The real objective was to say no to the Russians to show the Russians they had no diplomatic way out and then confront Russia with some very severe options which would end up weakening Russia. And what the Russians have done is they, if you think of this as a, as unfortunately as a, as a poker game, they, they called their hand, but before they called their hand, they raised them one. And the one was, instead of taking Eastern Ukraine, they're like, no, we're not gonna give you any part of Ukraine because we understand that your operation really is to lure us into an invasion in the East, and then you use the rest of Ukraine as, as your base. 
and that's unacceptable. So I think, I think Blinken and all of those guys knew exactly what they were doing. What they didn't expect was that Russia would try to take the entire country. But by having taken, trying to take the entire country, and by the way, I had really interesting conversations with Russian language speakers who are progressive folks, not Putin apologists, but you know, anti-imperialist socialist people from Russia who are following closely what the Russian media is saying. So they know a lot more than people who are just reading English language media. Um, they, they are of the opinion that, that, what, that what the Russian operation really consisted of and the reason it was slow in the beginning was two things. One, they, they did anticipate Zelensky would fold and the Ukrainians would crumble and then they'd be able to create um, like a, a puppet government or a proxy government in Kiev that would announce that Ukraine was indeed neutral. So the Russians calculated on that and that didn't happen. But the other reason, the other point, and it might be overlapping with the first point, is that the Russians didn't come in and do shock and awe type invasion of Ukraine. They didn't come in and demolish Kiev by the air the way the US demolished Baghdad in March 2003, or you know, bomb Basra into smithereens or Mosul, or the way what the U.S. actually did to Iraq. The U.S. bombed Iraq mercilessly for a week and then raced across the desert, and it still took them three weeks to conquer Baghdad, right? The Russians were trying to, they felt the Ukrainian military would probably crumble, that they would move in and not carry out this horrendous bombing of civilian areas, that they could kettle Ukrainian troops, surround them with these big convoys, that the Ukrainians would surrender. And then without having had too many civilian casualties, they could create a new, you know, facts on the ground, so to speak, and a new government in Kiev. And that didn't happen. So the war is, the because the Russians actually used a light touch, contrary to what the Western media is presenting, a light touch in terms of the tactics of the invasion, it increased the bravery of Zelensky and the others who thought, wait, they're not, using all of their power against us, we could possibly resist. And so there's a lot of Ukrainian resistance. And as all of you, as both of you know, bravery is a social phenomena. Like I, I might not wanna die today, but if my country's invaded tomorrow and I see all my neighbors are ready to go and fight and die, then I, I'm ready to die too. So you become brave, you know, you're not born brave. It's a social phenomena. So the Ukrainians are fighting harder than the Russians anticipated, and partly because the Russian invasion was kind of a light touch with the hope of surrounding and forcing the surrender of Ukrainian military. And, and so what's going to happen now, the big question is, if the Russians don't succeed at fully uh, kettling uh, the, the Ukrainian military and forcing a surrender, then the brutality of the Russian military operation will increase. And then it's gonna be even worse. And that's the thing that we have to watch we, because we don't know yet. The Russians have made a determination they're not going to lose. So if they can't win easily, they'll win using harsher methods. And that's why this situation can get much worse, much uh, very quickly. And that's why when you hear all of these calls for a no-fly zone, 
It seemed crazy. A week ago, Americans, by only 10% of Americans said the U.S. should do anything about Ukraine. Now 70% are for a no-fly zone. That's how fluid consciousness shifts. And if, um, if, the, if the chorus goes up, no-fly zone, no-fly zone, defend the Ukrainians against this terrible Russian onslaught. And Biden actually, as you said, he was a restraint in some ways. If he ends the process of restraint because it's not viable for him politically, and the U.S. actually starts to think about or tinker with or starts to implement a no-fly zone, I think we're back at the beginning of what could be the next world war. Like Americans should not, that's maybe one of the arguments we should use in these peace demonstrations. Unless the U.S. could end this war right now by meeting with Putin and saying, okay, we agree, Ukraine's gonna be neutral. You pull out, we're going to give you a security guarantee. What, what would Russia say right now? I think Russia would say yes. So we, we have to tell our people, the American people, that if you really want peace and you don't want World War III, you don't want war between the two biggest nuclear powers, demand that the U.S. government do the right thing, which is not to send more weapons to Ukraine or more sanctions on Russia, but to meet Russia and give them a security guarantee. You think the sanctions will actually work? <laughs> Yes, I think the sanctions are going to be very, um, very, very problematic for tens of millions of Russians. Um, I think Russia signed a contract with China so that uh, China is going to take most of the natural gas that would have gone to Germany and Nord Stream 2. China just signed an agreement to take a, a huge part of the gas to, um, to China. So. And some of the core industries of Russia, I think they'll, they're protected from sanctions to some degree. But I think for ordinary Russians, it's going to be very hard. And for middle class Russians who are used to travel, who are used to having you know, money in the bank, who want to go to the ATM and get money out, uh, cutting Russian banks from SWIFT, it's, it's, I think it's going to create a lot, of, a lot of suffering among Russians. Putin did not prepare the Russian people for this invasion. The Russian media kept telling people, this is a made up thing from the Americans. We're not gonna invade, it's not gonna happen. And so all the Russians I have talked to in the last three weeks who are leftists and you know, really anti-NATO, they were like, we're all in shock. None of us knew this was coming. If you're gonna go to war against a, a country and you're gonna suffer all the hardships of war, you have to prepare your population, right? You have to get them ready. You have to say like, this is, it's gonna be hard, but it's for just a just cause. Um, in, a, in large measure that didn't happen. It was, that's what makes the tactic. I kind of feel like there was a shift inside the Kremlin, like at the last minute uh, where this, the, they were, there must've been a debate among Putin and his asso closest associates in the military and intelligence services who the majority opinion came out, war is coming, we must act, we must act right away, we must act now, we must take all of Ukraine. Because it's such a sudden departure from what they were saying publicly, it would be sort of inexplicable as a tactic unless they just came to a different conclusion. It's not just Putin running the show. Putin is the dominant leader, but there's an establishment there and, and other major you know, figures. Shifting gears a little bit, what do you think of the uh, mainstream media in the United States? <laughs> yeah. 
I mean, the, the U.S. media, it's not only talk about the fog of war. I mean, it's deliberately creating misinterpretations of what's going on, false images. And also, it's pretty racist. I mean, in the last week, America has been involved in Saudi Arabia killing, helping to kill like thousands of Yemenis, probably more than have died, way more than have died in Ukraine. And that's been going on week after week. Do you hear, do you see candlelight vigils being promoted by MSNBC or Fox News? You know, same with the Syrians. I mean, the U.S. is bombing Syria. I mean, the U.S. went to war in Iraq. There weren't, like the media is like, going like the Ukraine, it's like, why are, why is a Ukrainian life more important than a Syrian life or a Somali life or a Yemeni life? I mean, partly it's racism because they're Europeans, but it's really because those countries where the dying is happening are the victims of the US and the corporate capitalist media functions as an echo chamber for the military industrial complex. So they don't want to create too much you know, hard feelings or bad feelings for Americans about the loss of life in Syria, Yemen, et cetera. Uh, so I think the American media has played a major role in fomenting a larger war hysteria rather than telling the truth about what caused this crisis. How do you do that in the face of this uh, onslaught of the media narrative? And what role, if any, do you see for social networks and points to be made that could be that could be distributed widely through some of these social networks. Right. And I mean, that, that's why your podcast is actually important and and why, you know, like the Abby Martin interview was important and why we're going on alternative media. Does it seem like, you know, does Fox News have a greater reach than your podcast? Yes. <laughs> um, and greater reach than any of our alternative media. But in moments like this in history, you have to stay true to your principles. You have to stay true to your values. You have to continue to tell the truth. At the beginning of wars, the war hysteria dominates. You know, the war hysteria dominates. And so our voices seem like lonely voices at the beginning of a war, most wars. And that's where we are right now. But the truth telling has to just continue and to recognize that the early phase of the war is gonna give way to another phase. And some of, the, some of the fog of war starts to dissipate as the thing continues. And so even though the mass media is dominant and we're a small voice, that's how anti-war movements always, the ones that become viable and valid and impactful, they always start as small voices, right? You don't start off as a mass movement, you start off with a, as a minority, a dedicated minority, same with all social movements for change. They always start like, you know, Rosa Parks and the four other women in her church who were meeting in the basement for 15 years before 1955, when she then decided, or uh, again decided not to give up her seat to a white man uh, on that bus and she got arrested and that ignited the civil rights revolution. I mean, she had been doing the same thing over and over and over again in her little cohort of, church women were meeting together and they were always frustrated. We're, we're so weak. We're so small. We, the, the intimidation is so great uh, from the state of Alabama. We can't really make progress. And then suddenly the truth tellers, you know, something happens that ignites a massive response and the truth tellers really become 
heroic instead of just a marginalized, isolated little group. They become heroic people. And everybody thinks like, we love Rosa Parks. Well, the only reason we even know about Rosa Parks is that the stuff that she was doing all the time for which there was no guarantee of success did succeed because at a certain moment in history, it became the vehicle for a mass movement. And that's how anti-war movements also progress. It's not just social justice movements or civil rights movements. So we have to keep doing what we're doing and not be too, not feel uh, too overwhelmed by the unfortunate moment where political, the political hysteria is so great. And we have to find venues and avenues, however small they might seem, to keep doing this truth telling. And eventually people, as we know, are suckers for the truth. They want the truth. And uh, unfortunately, it's rare that they get it. You're, uh, you're thinking these peace rallies or these rallies that are going on today are important. They're important, but they're, they're also problematic because if you're... If, if in some of the peace movements, they're trying to make an equivalency between Russia and the United States under the current situation in America, the dominant voice will be, there was a rally today against Russia. And, you know, that's the problem because it, it, you, it, and it's very hard for us to take a strong anti-war position against NATO because of the political moment that we're in. It's very hard. Like if you go to that demonstration in Nashville and say, dissolve NATO, NATO's the problem. A lot of people are going to say to you, well, wait, it's Russia that invaded, not NATO. So what are you talking about? So, you know, the, at the moment, it's going to be hard, but we have to still do it. We have to sort of, that's what I mean, like uphold the flag, the banner, the truthful banner <laughs> and tell the truth, recognizing that we could be momentarily isolated but I think this will give way. You know, we started the Answer Coalition three days after September 11th, and I was in New York, and I had a friend who was actually in this in the World Trade Center who didn't come out, uh, the fiance of my father-in-law. I mean, there was so much grief and rage and anger in New York, and we said we're going to start building an anti-war movement against George W. Bush, and people like spat upon us. They said, "Are you crazy?" You know. What it's Al Qaeda is the problem. I, you're not against Al Qaeda. We'd say it's not that we're for Al Qaeda. We just know the Bush administration is going to cynically use this grief and rage to go to war against people who had nothing to do with September 11th, because they're going to use it for a pretext for American militarism and the neocons. And so we stood up and we were really isolated. But you know what? About three weeks after we started, we had a demonstration and it was under a very simple slogan, war is not the answer, you know, and get out, get out of the Middle East. And 25,000 people came out. And then people started to feel like, oh, wait, maybe we can, maybe we don't, maybe we can come out of the closet, so to speak. You know, we don't have to be hiding because Bush is so, Bush and Cheney are so popular now. And, you know, like within a year, we had a mass movement against the Iraq war. Mm -hmm. So I don't want to, I, I just want people to not be overwhelmed by the moment. Stay true to our principles and values. Say we're going to keep organizing. Recognize that this moment will pass. Uh, we don't know what's coming next. But uh, it's not like all doom and gloom. We just have to keep out there fighting.
I don't want to minimize the danger because the danger is, I don't want to be cavalier about that. That's, is, this is real, this is real. But on the other hand, most people don't want world war. Most people would really seriously think this is a bad idea. They don't really feel Russia's threatening American cities. The idea to make Putin look like Hitler. Well, even that didn't work. It took the Japanese bombing of Pearl Harbor to you know, win over the American people to the idea that going to war was a good idea. Um, so there's a lot of room here for us politically, and there's gonna be a lot of contradictions among the policymakers. Uh, but again, we don't know how it ends. We don't have a crystal ball. The thing that we do control is what we say, what we do. You know, we like the meeting last night, I really wanted to give people a sense, not of not put on rose-colored glasses and minimize the problem, but to realize that truth-telling, generally speaking, wins out. Truth-telling generally attracts new social movements. And I think there's going to be a lot of bumps in the road for US policymakers that they didn't anticipate. And that we, the peace movement, the real peace movement, uh, you know, we have to we have to just do what we can in preparation for another period where things will get better. Where can people follow you and get more of information and um et any other websites you recommend? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So um my my Facebook page for my podcast, which is the Socialist Program, which comes out three times a week. It's called The Socialist Program with Brian Becker. You can find that on Facebook. It's on all streaming services. Uh, I also have a show once a week on Breakthrough News. So if you go to their Twitter handle, Breakthrough News Twitter handle, uh, that's another important way. Of course, the Answer Coalition website, answercoalition.org. And if anybody wants to write me uh, by email, you can write to brian at answer coalition.org. Go back and find that discussion with Abby Martin. That was extraordinary also. Yeah, that's a two-hour conversation. It's really a deep dive on, mm -hmm. on politics in Ukraine, Russian history. Yeah. So you can find it at either the Empire Files, which I love Empire Files with Abby Martin, or Breakthrough News. It was done in collaboration between those two media networks. Right. So the Empire Files or Breakthrough News it's a two-hour conversation with me and uh, filmmaker Abby Martin. We always end with a song. Do you have anything off the... I think the song Solidarity Forever sums up what we need right now. We need to have solidarity with the people to fight against the war makers and to recognize that our hope, our optimism comes from the people themselves, not from looking to this or that political leader to save us. We, we the people, must save ourselves. You have been listening to peace activist and podcaster Brian Becker, and I hope you take his words to heart. Look him up, follow his podcast, also find Abby Martin and the Empire Files. And remember, as Brian said, we cannot depend on leaders to make peace. It is up to us. So now, as requested, here's Pete Seeger and Solidarity they have taken untold millions that they never toiled to earn But without our brain and muscle not a single wheel can turn We can break their haughty power, gain our freedom when we learn That the union makes us strong Solidarity forever Solidarity forever Solidarity forever
Kings has placed a power greater than their hoarded gold, greater than the might of atoms magnified a thousandfold. We can bring to birth a new world from the ashes of the old, for the union makes us strong.